Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. At the very end of 2019, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un delivered remarks in a New Year's speech that suggest we may be in for a very turbulent year of nuclear diplomacy. Since 2018, North Korea has had a self-imposed moratorium on the testing of nuclear weapons and long-range missiles like the kind that could reach the United States. The moratorium stems from the diplomatic opening between the United States and North Korea that culminated in three meetings between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un over the course of 2018 and 2019. However, even as North Korea has paused its long-range missile and nuclear testing, it has continued other tests to advance its nuclear weapons program. And then in this New Year's speech, Kim Jong-un suggested that the self-imposed moratorium on nuclear and missile testing was over, and that on top of that, North Korea has a powerful new weapon in its arsenal. So what does this all mean for nuclear diplomacy with North Korea and the prospect of more provocation or even outright conflict? On the line with me to discuss where we are headed with North Korea is Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. He is a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. He is a longtime nuclear security expert and North Korea watcher. And in this conversation, we discuss where the North Korea situation is headed in 2020. We kick off discussing the impact, if any, of the U.S. killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani on North Korea's strategic thinking before having a longer conversation about North Korea's nuclear program and what to expect from diplomacy in 2020. So the last time that Jeffrey Lewis was on this show, we discussed his book, which was published in 2018. Uh, and this is actually a novel that presents a very plausible scenario for a nuclear exchange between North Korea and the United States. And that exchange takes place in 2020. So naturally, we ended this conversation discussing whether or not the events he describes in his novel still present a plausible pathway towards nuclear war. Don't be discouraged, though. This is a good conversation. It's lively and interesting, and it is a good summary of where we are headed in 2020 in terms of North Korea and nuclear diplomacy, which is sure to be a key issue driving the global agenda in this new decade. And before we start, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, we have a, a few ad spots available in the coming uh, month or two, if you're interested in securing one of those to reach this audience with your message. Let me know. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me. And even if you are not a potential advertiser, I'd love to hear from you. Send me thoughts of people I should interview, topics I should cover, or your reaction to this or any episode you hear. I, I always appreciate your feedback. And speaking of ads, I'm always pleased to promote Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. 
If you have any questions about that program, you can also reach out to me and I'll put you in touch with the good folks at Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I'm of two minds about it, because for the people who say it doesn't matter, they're often trying to imagine that there are no consequences to U.S. actions. And I think it does matter. It's just that it's one of many things the U.S. has done that I think has hardened attitudes in Pyongyang. And those are things that the U.S. has done over the course of, you know, 30 years. So, you know, I whether it's uh, the invasion of Iraq after Saddam disarmed or whether it was the support for the overthrow of Gaddafi after he disarmed or pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal or now killing Qasem Soleimani, I, I think the North Koreans don't trust the U.S., and, and I, th- I think they're probably right not to trust the United States. So I don't know that it changes anything, um, but it's, it's you know, one more brick uh, in, in a foundation uh, of, a, of a belief, I think, in, in the importance of their nuclear weapons. Yeah, in reading that Anna Fifield book earlier this year, it was interesting to me just how large the death of Gaddafi looms in North Korean strategic thinking. Yeah. Um, I mean, Anna's great. Um, yeah, that book was I great. I loved that book. Oh, it was fantastic. Um, you know, I was really struck by that, too. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a little hard to know because you really have to talk to people. But what the part that I really noticed um, at the time was how frequently the North Koreans referred to Gaddafi. Um, and, you know, I think that's in part because and this is one of those little known facts um, the Bush administration, after the invasion of Iraq, engaged in an effort to engage the North Koreans. And at the time, they actually pointed to the successful diplomacy with Gaddafi as a model for Kim Jong-il. Hmm. So uh, Condoleezza Rice said it publicly, and, and then John Bolton repeated it. Right, And so the message was... Uh, Gaddafi would be a good intermediary to talk to the North Koreans on behalf of the United States to make the case that if North Korea were to disarm, there would be all these benefits that would come from that. So I think from a North Korean perspective, um, what was so important about Libya, it's not that they would have focused on that naturally. It's that they had an administration say, we always keep our word, go ask Gaddafi. And (laughs) when things ended badly, I think the North Koreans were like, hey, do you remember that time? But of course, in the United States, we have, uh, do we have no memory or short memories? (laughs) It's hard to know. Yeah. Um, But I, I think, they didn't forget that fact. Was it Madeleine Albright has 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 that quote? Were the the most generous people in the world with the shortest attention span? <laughs> it's painful but true. Um, it's 
So, so we're we're now starting the year at seemingly another important inflection point on nuclear diplomacy with North Korea. Um, at the end of the year, Kim Jong Un uh, gave a year end speech that you know, potentially raised the prospects of future nuclear testing and long range ballistic missile testing. Can you describe like what he said in that speech and, and why we should be paying attention to what he said? Right. So this was a really unusual event. So just to set the stage, you know, historically, Kim Jong-un has given a speech on New Year's Day. Uh, But he has also resurrected this older North Korean habit of having party plenums. Um, In fact, he had two plenums this year, which is, I'd have to go back and look like it. I don't think that's a thing that's happened in the time I've been following this. This is more of like a Kim Il-sung kind of era thing. Um, and so instead of giving a New Year's speech this year, they had this five-day meeting. And in the um, final readout, um, there are these remarks by Kim Jong-un. And he said a number of things. I mean, honestly, it's not that it's not that long, the portion about nuclear weapons and diplomacy with the United States. And people could probably go ahead and read it. And it's, it's not really that... Um, it's not that polemical. You know, it's not like your typical North Korean kind of, of statement. Um, it really, it says, I think very directly, um, that he is disappointed with diplomacy and that he doesn't have any trust in the United States to keep its commitments. And he didn't really take any swipes at Trump, which was notable, but he did mention that Trump had made a personal commitment to him to end military exercises and that those exercises had nonetheless continued. And so he paints this picture, um, which isn't really getting through, I think, on our side, that diplomacy really has failed in his eyes uh, and that they were going to try something different. Um, and, you know, the phrase, one of the phrases that caught people's attention was that they would move to, um, I think they called them uh, shocking actual actions. Uh, actual action. Yeah, I'm, I may be messing that up, actually. But it was shocking was a word and, and I'm pretty sure actual and, and I don't know. But the, there, there's a clear indication that, that they're going to respond now. Uh, there's no mention of what that response is, but there is an implicit statement because there's a, a, a set of remarks about how the moratoria on nuclear testing and ICBM testing are now. Um, over, right? Well, that he, he no longer feels bound by them and that they'll, they'll test things when they feel like testing them. Um, so, you know, he doesn't really paint it as, so you did this, so I'm going to do a test. It's more, I've refrained from these tests, which we need to do. And now the, that restraint is gone. And so, you know, in our own time, we'll go ahead and do this. Um, and then he confirmed that there is a uh, what, what he called a new strategic weapon that would soon be revealed to the world. So he didn't say they'll test the weapon. Um, and he didn't say they'll do tests in response. But he but he did say the moratoria is over. Diplomacy has failed. Um, they're going back to developing their capabilities, and we'll soon be seeing a new instance of that capability. Which you know it's pretty bad. So so what do you suspect that new capability is, or is it just bluster? So it's definitely not bluster. And I say that um, for a couple of reasons. One reason is that we see lots of evidence that North Korea is further along than they have publicly disclosed. I think one big 
failure in our discourse about North Korea is that we tend to assume that the first time we see a weapon system publicly is the moment that that weapon system came into being. Um, and so we're always assessing where the North Koreans are based on like their last parade or their last missile test. Um, but in fact, there's a lot of evidence that the North Koreans develop capabilities and maybe even field or deploy them, but they don't necessarily show us sometimes for several years. Um, and you know, obviously if they don't test something, it's arguably not that reliable. Um, so it is important to keep track of their tests, but, um, you know, three years ago now in February, um, so three, three, what will be three years this February, North Korea showed us a large diameter solid propellant missile, um, the Pukuksong 2, which we estimate is, um, like 1.7 meters in diameter, which is really pretty big. Um, just looking at the U S and the Soviet programs, they are in a position to have developed a solid propellant ICBM that could reach the United States, mm -hmm. right? So that would be a, an upgrade over the liquid propellant ICBMs they have that could reach the United States. Um, and so that's one thing that could happen, right? Because we think technically they probably should be there. They've hinted that they might be there. Um, and so that's possible. So, so this is a, a more reliable long-range missile. Well, you know, I don't know how reliable, you know, what I would say is it's more the advantage of moving from liquid to solids is a liquid propellant missile needs to be fueled. And that fuel is corrosive. So you can either fuel the missile just before you launch it, which leads to a pretty long pre-launch exposure time, or you can fuel it in advance. Uh, but then you got to move around a fueled missile, which is kind of dangerous. Uh, and the fuel, like I say, is pretty corrosive, which is going to kind of shorten the service life of the missile. So most militaries prefer solid propellant missiles because they're kind of flexible, more easy to handle. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this would be a natural thing for them to want to do. You know, we have seen over the course of this year, they tested five new solid propellant artillery rockets and missiles. That's a pretty normal thing for a military that's advancing to switch over from liquid mm -hmm. fuels, which are basically just a pain to solid fuels. Mm -hmm. So that that got a little rambly, but you know, one of the problems in our discourse is they're probably further along than we think. And there are probably things that they have done already that they have not shown us. Um, and so that makes it hard to predict, you know, because if they have a solid field missile and two or three other things sitting on a shelf in the old days, I could tell you what they might do because I, I knew what they had to do next. But today they're so far along. It's really just Kim's whim. You know, so a solid propellant ICBM is one option. Um, they could do something with their submarine based capability. That's another option. Um, and then kind of my favorite uh, is orbital bombardment. Um, which what, would be what's kidding. that? <laughs> this is something the Soviets did in the 60s um, and something the Chinese looked at doing, but in the end decided not to do it. Uh, you can put a nuclear weapon up into orbit with a rocket stage and then use that rocket stage to bring it back down, which gives you basically unlimited range. Mm -hmm. uh, and the advantage of that is you could fire over the South pole. Mm -hmm. So if North Korea wanted to evade the defense system in Alaska, you, you know, you build a bigger rocket with, with uh, 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 a warhead and a, and a, and a little rocket stage and you'd put it up in orbit 
So I, I think like burn it and bring it back down. The the upshot here is that North <laughs> Korea is most certainly increasing both its deterrent capacity, but also, you know, seemingly based on what you're saying, is also developing these technologies, it would seem, in order to try to force the US back to the negotiating table. Um what is, I mean, Kim Jong un's overriding goal right now? Yeah, I is it is I it sanctions they, relief? Yes. Um you know, the North Koreans will sometimes tell you security guarantees are more more important than sanctions relief. But I think that's um, I think that's a, a what I would call Socratic diplomacy, pointing out how, you know, they they, they ask for security guarantees um, mostly to illustrate um, how hard it would be for the United States to find a security guarantee that would be better than nuclear weapons. Mm. I think fundamentally Kim's goal is to retain power and he seems to believe that for that he needs to get the north korean economy moving again and so he wants sanctions off so what i have always understood the north korean position to be which they don't say so directly but i I think they want an agreement similar to the one the united states has with israel which is everyone knows israel has nuclear weapons but Israel doesn't test those nuclear weapons. It doesn't show those nuclear weapons off in parades. It doesn't mention those nuclear weapons, except for when occasionally the prime minister slips up and says it. Um, And my my guess is that's what the North Koreans are offering. The North Koreans are offering to not give up their nuclear weapons in exchange for a better relationship with the United States, but to allow those weapons to recede into the background uh, so that they are not part of our discussion about security in Northeast Asia. And I think that's why Kim's so honked off about the way diplomacy went this year, because, you know, can can we maybe just like back up a little bit and talk about the kind of trajectory of diplomacy since that meeting in Singapore in June 2018. So there, there was that meeting, the big, big meeting between Trump and, and Kim. Um, And then uh, can you just kind of describe and where we've been gone since then. I know last year, 2019 was a big year of diplomacy, but it's also fair to say that, you know, in that time, there has been no, as you said, overt display of, of long range ballistic missile testing or um, right. nuclear testing in, in that time since that self-imposed moratorium. That's right. So what I, what happens in Singapore is that there is a very general statement Um which is mostly about improving the relationship between the United States and North Korea, but does include a sentence in which Kim reaffirmed a prior commitment to Moon Jae-in for this thing called yeah, the, the South de-nuclear... Korean president. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sorry. The, uh, where Kim reaffirmed a commitment to the South Korean president uh, for this thing called the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which we should talk about for one second, because it doesn't mean disarmament. Uh, you know, I think the Trump administration has been incredibly successful in changing the phrase denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula into the complete and verifiable, complete, verifiable and irreversible denuclearization of North Korea. Uh, but from a North Korean perspective, what denuclearization means is not that North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons because, in fact, they They've been committed to the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula before they had nuclear weapons. To them, what that means is there are no U.S. nuclear weapons stationed in the Korean Peninsula. 
There are no threats against North Korea from the United States involving nuclear weapons. Um, and that as part of that, their own weapons would recede into the background. So they're, they're really talking about what we would think of as tension reduction, reducing the salience of nuclear weapons. They're not actually talking about them giving them up while the U.S. you know keeps its capability. Mm-hmm. So Kim reaffirmed an existing commitment. Uh, did not make a new commitment, although the Trump administration has sort of asserted he did. But if you read it, it literally says reaffirmed. And then we were stuck because Trump immediately promised that what this meant was that North Korea was going to disarm. But I think from the North Korean perspective, they thought they were doing Trump a political favor. So they would stop the tests uh, so that he wouldn't have the political aggravation of a missile test or a nuclear test. And then after Singapore, they agreed they would um, dismantle uh, some of the facilities at Sohei, uh, which is a place in North Korea where they have done space launches in the past and where they have tested engines uh, for both their rockets to put things into space, but also their missiles. And so I think from the North Korean perspective, what they were doing is they were stopping provocations and then giving Trump good news stories. And he was expected to lift sanctions on them. Right. They weren't talking about disarming, but they were talking about taking the North Korean nuclear problem off his plate, politically speaking. But the Trump people, I I don't think, ever got that. Right. So they just kept demanding disarmament, disarmament, disarmament. And then the place this comes to a head is in Hanoi last year. That was in February, right? February. February. That's right. Where basically the North Koreans come with this offer that says, well, they'll close Yongbyon, which is their main nuclear research center. It's not everything, because again, I don't think they're talking about disarming, but it's a pretty big deliverable. It would look great on TV. Um, you know, it would represent some constraint on the North Koreans. And so I think from the North Korean perspective, like they're really offering this good news story for Trump, right? So he'll get to, you know, send US officials there and, you know, they'll watch them, you know, blow things up and, you know, whatever. Um, and he's supposed to pay for that, right? He is supposed to lift some sanctions. And and Trump is still stuck on this idea of, no, 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 this is about you giving up the weapons. You have to give up the weapons. Um, and and obviously that's not what the North Koreans were offering. And so uh, the meeting broke up with no agreement. Um, they have tried to resurrect that over the course of, of, of 2019. Um, you know, Trump did that meeting in Panmunjom, the uh, truce village and the demilitarized zone. Yeah. Where he briefly stepped into North Korea and came back. Um, but that really wasn't, you know, a full summit. That was just a, a, a short talk. Mm-hmm. So uh, so basically from the Korean, from the North Korean perspective, they're just sort of stuck. Um, they think that they've made these concessions, but they have not gotten what they really want, which is sanctions relief. And the Trump administration is is not interested right now in giving them any sort of sanctions relief. So we're sort of seemingly kind of stuck at, at, at where we've always been. I, I think that's right. I mean, the, the only difference is that, um, you know, I do think because the North Koreans are so much further along in their program in terms of their capabilities, I mean, it's, it bears repeating because I tell people this and they just, like normal people don't understand this because of the way our media covers it. North Korea has tested a thermonuclear weapon and has three times tested missiles that can reach the United States, mm-hmm. um, which I think people don't quite 
reckon with, in part because the Trump administration claims it didn't happen. Um, and so from a North Korean perspective, their leverage is growing, 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 growing. And so each time they're willing to give up less and less and less. But the U.S. position has stayed the same. So we're in the same position. That's true. Um, but we're in the same position with less leverage than we've ever had before. So what's like a, a, a way forward? Like if, if you were running the show, if you were um, if you were in charge of, of diplomacy, what what would you proffer? What, what would you suggest we could do to, to move forward right. here? So look, North Korea is never going to give up its nuclear weapons, at least not a North Korea that's run by the Kim family. So from my perspective, our goal isn't so much as to get rid of those weapons, although, you know, obviously someday I would like that to happen. But our goal is to reduce tension, because what I really don't want is a crisis like the one we're seeing with Iran to spark back up in North Korea, uh, where it runs the prospect of turning into a nuclear war. Uh, and I have to say, I'm vaguely horrified, right? I wrote this novel yeah. about a nuclear war with North Korea that starts with an aircraft getting shot down, a civilian aircraft, and like what has happened in Iran, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. we're all staring at this civilian aircraft that looks like it got shot down by an overzealous uh, air defense unit that yeah. was, you know, freaked out because of the ambient tension, right? Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if that turns out to be what happened, but. For me, the urgent issue on the Korean Peninsula is not convincing Kim Jong-un to disarm. It's reducing the risk of nuclear war as close to zero as possible. So what I would do is I would accept that reality. And, and frankly, I think the general framework outlined by Kim, no tests, uh, no showing things off in parades, no threatening people with seas of fire, uh, closing down some high-profile facilities. Um, I think that's the way to go. Now, you know, we can argue about... The sort of the Israel should... option that you referenced earlier, yes. that kind of tacit acknowledgement of, uh, of nuclear weapons, though not um, any sort of ostentatious display. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day... Is there a political space for that in the United States right now? I mean, are you hearing I mean, any of the candidates, for example, on the Democratic no, side no saying anything like that? Anything reasonable in the United States at the moment. I mean, every time Trump talks to North Korea, the Democrats are desperate to get to his right. It's just the most absurd thing. I think, you know, this is this is a much bigger conversation. It has nothing to do with North Korea, and I think has everything to do with. Oh, this weird streak of American exceptionalism that we have, where we're just convinced that we're all powerful and we never make mistakes. And I mean, it just the idea that we have to learn to live with the fact that North Korea does have the capability to put a nuclear weapon on the United States. Yeah. It is just so hard um, to sell to people. Um, you know, and frankly, it was true even in the Cold War. You know, people talk about how the Cold War was mutual assured destruction, right? But in fact, that was a calumny. The phrase mutual assured destruction was a, a term that was used to abuse the Kennedy administration, which I think the Kennedy administration quite rightly concluded you couldn't win a nuclear war, mm -hmm. right? And so that's, they had this policy of assured destruction, which is they weren't going to try to use nuclear weapons to emerge victorious. They were going to settle for deterrence, that if the Soviet Union nuked the U.S., we would destroy them in return. And, and their argument was, that's it. That's all you can do. You're not going to win. There's no meaningful victory. And people who wanted to try to fight and win a nuclear war mocked that 
And so instead of assured destruction, they called it mutual assured destruction or assured vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? So even in the Cold War, accepting that the Soviet Union had the capacity to hold U.S. targets at risk um, was not something that uh, a lot of people in America could stomach. So so because you brought it up and because we are in 2020, three months before March 2020, um, uh, which is uh, when the events of, of your book, the 2020 Commission Report, take place, I just wanted to ask, uh, like, in the two years since you wrote that book, how close or far from the scenario that you lay out as a potential nuclear exchange between North Korea and, and uh, the United States are we? We are right on schedule. Uh, I mean, it's so basically it's horrifying. like three months until doomsday. Yeah, at this point. I mean, you know, in the in the in the novel, what happens is when negotiations break down. Um, the U.S. starts this campaign of bomber flights to pressure the North Koreans. Um, And it's in the midst of that campaign that uh, a civilian aircraft is shot down by the North Koreans who are jumpy, and then things spiral out of control. Um, You know, as I sit here, negotiations seem to have broken down. The North Koreans haven't started testing yet. Um, but there have been, I have seen at least one tweet, right, from a person listing options. And, you know, the options were, uh, you know, how do you respond to North Korean tests? And it's like, well, increasing bomber overflights. So <laughs> it's kind of like, guess you didn't read the book, chief. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I don't know. Maybe the good news is, I guess, implicitly in the book, I mean, it, it, it starts in March. So here's the reassuring thing I'll say. I imagine those bomber flights started earlier. Um, so yeah. maybe we have a little bit more than March. How about that? Okay. But, you know, and, and frankly, I don't know. You know, maybe, um, you know, if we get to January 2021, uh, uh, you, know, you know, maybe. Maybe, maybe your have, book maybe actually is changed. fiction. That, that would be helpful. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I would like that. I have to say, though, I will. And, and this is a serious point. Um, the dynamics that I sketch out in the book are not unique to Donald Trump. You know, I think a Democratic president could not just as easily, but could make many of the same mistakes that the Trump administration makes in the book. You know, that really isn't the, the, the mistakes that get made in the book um, are as often are, are more often people trying to do the reasonable thing. Um, but not really grasping how complex the situation is. So, you know, I, I, Donald Trump losing doesn't solve this problem. Uh, and, and that certainly wasn't, wasn't the message of the book. So, um, you know, but having said that, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think we, you know, I, I'm, I'm always hopeful for new leadership, um, yeah. <laughs> just because things seem quite incompetent at the moment. Uh, well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jeffrey Lewis. And I'll post a link to his book, which is called The 2020 Commission Report, and also to that Anna Fifield book uh, that I referenced at the outset of the conversation. It's called The Great Successor. And it's a, a book that's basically a biography uh, of Kim Jong-un. Really good book that was published uh, last year. 
Also, I made this announcement last week, but I wanted to reiterate that I am rolling out a new bonus for premium subscribers, which is office hours. I will set aside a couple of hours each month to chat with you about whatever is on your mind. To become a premium subscriber, just go to patreon.com slash global dispatches or follow the links in the description field of this podcast episode or go to the homepage uh, if you are uh, willing there is a way. So thank you in advance to all of you who are premium subscribers and look out for an email from me in the very near future about this new office hours bonus. Thank you. All right, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.